Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. This morning we looked at this passage of scripture from John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, where Jesus is telling his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. And by this, the world will know that they are his disciples. Now, let me present to you the big picture of what's happening here. John chapter 13 to 17 is famously known as Jesus' farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. What that is, is it's really Jesus' last private teaching to his disciples. It's his goodbye speech to them, because in just a few hours, Jesus is going to be taken captive, and he's going to be held uh, and and forced to an illegal trial that happens at night. There's going to be a lot of trumped-up charges laid against him. He's going to be condemned as a blasphemer, and he's going to be handed over to the Romans to be executed the next day. So John 13 is really a good place to start for all of us this morning because it really gives context to the commandment that Jesus gives us by way of both example and by way of expectation. Okay, so example and expectation. So picture the scene with me this morning. It's Jesus' last meal. He knows he's going to die in just a few hours. And He knows God has already orchestrated into motion the things that are going to unfold. And, you know, for somebody who has this kind of knowledge, you would, what would you do? There would be so much of anxiety and so much of thoughts running through your head. But I want you to look at what Jesus does in this moment, even though that he knows what's coming ahead of him. In John 13, verse 2, if you read with me, look at what Jesus does. It says this, During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him." See, if we focus our attention on verse 3, it gives us three unchangeable truths that is so profound, which leads Jesus to do what he does. And those truths are this. Jesus knew the sovereignty of God. Jesus knew his identity in God. And Jesus knew the power of God. See, the glorious Son of God was so confident in these truths that it leads him to do the work of a common house slave by washing the feet of his disciples. And not just his disciples' feet, but the very feet of the person who would betray him. I mean, if you think about this, it's, it's such a profound uh, work that God is doing. No one could take away these truths from Jesus. See, he was never going to stop being the eternal Son of God who came from the Father and was going back to the Father. Jesus' earthly ministry was demonstrated by the power of God, and it was witnessed by so many people. 
And finally, Jesus knew that above all things, God, his Father, was in charge of all things, as it says in Scripture, that all authority had been given to him. And so he knew God's will was going to take place regardless of what happens. Even Jesus' own life will be a willful surrender into the hands of sinful men. It was never taken away from him by force. See, Jesus himself said that I lay down my life of my own accord, no one takes it away from me. But consider this for a moment. The eternal, transcendent Son of God becomes the incarnate personal slave. From utter glory to utter humility. See, the transcendent God, the God who is so distinct, who is so separate from all creation, who is so holy, comes so very near, becomes so very personal, becomes so very incarnate in our likeness to become a slave for you and for me. Isn't it much easier for guilty sinners to relate with a slave than it is to relate with an authoritarian or with a judge? Because for those who are guilty, there is always the label of condemnation hanging over their heads. And yet this is exactly how Jesus relates with his disciples, as a slave. See, the God of glory is not relating with his, his disciples in this moment as, as a condemning judge, but as a slave who washes their feet from glory to humility. Can you picture this thought for a moment? If you were an inmate, a death row inmate in your prison cell, in a Texas prison cell, and, and you knew you were going to die the next morning, would you, as a last request, ask to wash the feet of the warden? Because he's the one who's going to pull the lever on the electric chair that's going to fry you the next day. Would you and I do something like that? Our culture completely tells us that we would not do something like that. Because what would we do? We would be asking for our last meal, and we would be asking for you know, our favorite TV show. We would be looking for what's in it for me. Let me indulge in whatever time that I have left because I know I'm going to die, correct? But Jesus doesn't do that here. And the scripture tells us why he doesn't do that. In verse 14, Jesus says this after he washes his disciples' feet. He says, if I then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. See, Jesus is using this precious time with his disciples to teach them by example what it means to love as a true servant. And out of this example comes his expectation for them. Remember I said the commandment comes by way of example and by way of expectation. Commentators have said that this scene in particular had such a profound impact on the Apostle John that many years later when John wrote his first letter to the church in Ephesus, a lot of the principles that he teaches in that letter comes from this very example. It changed him so much to see his God and his Lord and his Master serve him in such a way. So we come back to verse 34 this morning, the scripture that we read in Jesus' commandment. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, I ask myself, if I'm a Christian, am I not, am I still under the law? Am I not under God's grace? Am I not under God's unmerited favor? And then if that's the case, why then is Jesus giving me a new commandment? And if it's a new commandment, what was the old one? Correct? During Jesus' ministry, he was challenged by one of the experts in the law, and he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? 
And to this he replied in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. He said, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And there is a second like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. See, the Jewish listeners of that time knew that Jesus was quoting their scripture. And we know this to be the famous golden rule. See, our standard of love, according to this passage of scripture, is saying that my demonstration of love for God should be rooted in my, my love for my neighbor as myself. But here's where things change. The new commandment is now no longer putting the emphasis on loving my neighbor based on my love for myself, but it is elevating the standard of love to Jesus Christ's supernatural love for us. See, we are now commanded to love God the way that Christ has loved us. And in so doing, we love our neighbor as Christ has loved us. And so there's a number of other questions that come from this commandment. And so I want to systematically go through these questions and kind of answer it. And the very first question that comes to mind is, what then is the love of God? How can I tangibly define God's love for me in order to fulfill the commandment? Um, The one thing that we want to know is that God's love has a restorative purpose behind it. Okay, that's one of the things that we want to know. God's love has a restorative purpose behind it. See, I told you that uh, Jesus, uh, John, was so profoundly impacted by what Jesus did that he actually gives the perfect definition of what love is. So in 1 John 4.10, John says this about the love of Jesus Christ. He says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. This is a very loaded statement. If we understand what it's actually telling us, what it's saying is this, God the Father loved us so much that he gave what was most valuable and most precious to him in order to pay off our sin debt. The most valuable and precious thing to God the Father has been given over to us as a demonstration of love in order to pay off our sin debt. Imagine a father giving up his son to rescue his enemies who hate him. Is that something that happens in everyday life? Hardly. You hardly see that. But this is exactly what the gospel declares to have happened to us. The Bible says that God the Father demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, there is nobody who actually could hold their head high in the presence of God with such innocence other than the very Son of God. And it is because of his perfect record that God the Father actually takes that record and he gives it to an imperfect and worthless people You and I, who are guilty sinners, in order to save us. So think about it. The most precious and valuable and perfect person for God the Father has been given in exchange for the most worthless and imperfect people, you and me. And this is how God the Father is demonstrating his love and sacrificially giving his son. Now, Christ also is demonstrating his love for us in that he is willfully surrendering his life such that we can experience the Father's love. And so here's the interesting thing. When Christ does this, he's not expecting repayment for 
his sacrifice. See, I told you that God's love is not just restorative in that it is bringing us to a place where we were before. We no longer, as we come into faith through Jesus Christ, have this guilty sign of condemnation hanging over us. But God goes one step further and he elevates us now to a place and a position that we never had before in our life. See, God's love is exalting us to a higher estate It is moving us to a place that we've never been to before. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Bible says that we have the legal right to become children of God through faith in Him. And that is such a powerful, powerful truth. You know what that is telling us? It's telling us that we now have the ability and the privilege to enjoy the Father's love the way that Jesus Christ Himself has been enjoying it from all eternity. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says this to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And again, the disciple John, so profoundly impacted by this truth, writes this and he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. See, the world would love to tell you that we are all God's children because we are his creation. And in some sense, that's true. But this statement is so relationally intimate that it can't be given to just anybody. It's only given to members of God's family. Nobody can take this title on themselves. We could all say, hey, we're God's creation, and so we're, we're God's children. Fine, in a very general sense, but this statement is very personal, and it is only given to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross. So here's the amazing truth that we need to know. The Son of God is willing to share the love that He experiences with His Father to us. This morning, we want to know this simple truth. God will love you no more and no less than how He already loves you in Jesus Christ right now. Amen. And that is the truth that will never change. Here's a famous quote by Amy Carmichael, and she said this, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. And so look at how God demonstrates his love for us. The Father gives what was most precious, what was most perfect, and most dear to him, his own son, in order to love us. And the son, in also doing the same demonstration of love, is giving to us his very own father to experience the same love that he has experienced through all eternity. If you do not know what it's like to be loved unconditionally by a, by a father, this is the perfect truth that you need to remember, that God is going to love you perfectly as he loves Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is love without conditions and love without clauses, and it is love that is freely given by faith. And that needs to be something that we keep meditating on because it's so transformative, it's so powerful that it, it just really, it changes us. For John, it was a mind-blowing truth. Now, that leads me to the second question, and that is this. Have you experienced God's love for yourself? See, love was never an abstract concept in the mind of God. It was never just mere sentiment, and it was never just a flippant uh, phrase that we keep saying, I love you. No, God's love was intentional, and it was purposed to be demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. See, the love of God came at such a high cost that it is irrepayable. 
And so there's two things that we must know when we want to experience the love that God has given to us. We must know, one, that you cannot, you and I cannot earn God's love. We can't earn it. The person who believes he can earn or work for God's love has failed to understand God's work of love for him. See, here's the sobering truth of the gospel, and I have to keep reminding my own heart this truth again and again. There is at no time in our life, from the time we were born to the time that we die, where we are intrinsically valuable to God, where he would say, I will I love you because you are this, or I will love her because she is this. There is nothing in us that would cause God to love us. He did it out of his own will and out of his own choosing. And so we need to realize that we cannot earn God's love, and that's the truth of the gospel. The second truth that it tells us is this, we can't obligate God to love us. See, the person who believes that he can attain God's love through keeping the law, through his moral performance, has failed to understand the truth of what gift, what a gift really is. We can't, by our doing good works, put God in his debt. We can't force him to bless us and to love us. God is obligated to no man, and he's not going to do that. For sinners such as us, the only thing that God had guaranteed as an inheritance was death. And yet, because of Christ's death, we are now given life. Here's a quote from Martin Luther, and uh, it's a very true statement that he makes. He says this, The sin underneath all of our sin is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. See, I came from a moralist background, and for me, I relate so much more like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. I am the grumpy, crass man who says, you know what, I did all this thing, and this guy who ruined everything is getting so much grace. And yet, God's word comes to us and says, rest, stop laboring, and stop trying to perform You're never going to achieve my perfect standard in Christ Jesus. But I'm giving it to you as a gift. See, this breaks down every ounce of pride when God says your good works is going to count for nothing. Your righteousness is like a filthy rag. You need to come and trust in me that I give it to you as a gift. And that the only thing that is holding an individual back from coming to God to receive this is their own pride. It's so easy when you understand what God is doing, but it is so hard when your pride keeps you away from accepting it. This morning, there are some of you who are still performing, who are still believing that by your keeping the law, by you performing immorally, God is some way obligated to bless you, to give you a good life, to answer your prayers, to deliver you from whatever calamity that you're going through, and The answer to this is you need to rest in the love of God for you and stop trying to work for it. My last question to all of us this morning as a church is this. If we say that we love and belong to Jesus Christ, has our love for one another been seen on a personal and corporate level? See, Jesus Christ demands we reproduce the very love that he has given to us. 
In the example that he gives his disciples, nowhere did Jesus, after finishing you know, his, his chore of washing their feet, turn around and said, okay, I washed 12 of your feet, now all of you take turns to wash my feet. He never said, reciprocate the love that I have given to you. But what did he say? He said, go and do as I have done for one another. He said, reproduce this love that I have given to you, what I have given by example. So if we say that we are of God and have been born of his nature as his child, then the very love that Christ has given to us needs to flow out of this nature. If we say that we have eternal life because of God, then our life must be life-giving as his was. My love ought to do what Christ has done for me. So the question that we need to ask is, have you really experienced the love of God? See, the world is watching our actions for its authenticity. And the gospel helps us to understand truths that will propel us to obey Jesus' command. And remember, I told you in the beginning, there were three unchangeable truths that moved Jesus because he knew that these truths will never be taken away from him. And so the gospel is also giving us, like him, three truths that if we understand these truths, that it will never be taken away from us, it will help us in our walk to fulfill what Jesus has commanded us to do. And so here are those three truths that the gospel declares to us. One, God's love for us in Christ will never change. You will not in any point in your life earn more of God's love or lose any more of God's love than how he loves you perfectly in Christ. Number two, our identity as God's children will never change. It's permanent. You have come into his family. There is no such thing as being excommunicated out of God's family. God, when he makes a promise, keeps it, and it is forever. And so this is our gift for eternity. And lastly, we are empowered to fulfill the very command Jesus has given to us. I asked you this question, why is Jesus giving us a new commandment? I mean, we blotched up the other 10 that he already had given to us. Did he have to add an 11th one just to rub it in? I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, if we're already doing a good job filling at the other 10, you don't need another 11th one to make the, the, the straw, you know, break the back of the camel. Here is the gospel truth to us. See, Jesus is the only person who fulfilled the law, and he was the only one who deserved to be blessed for his perfect life, but instead he was cursed on account of us. But the good news is, because Jesus Christ lives now, he is able to empower us to fulfill the law as he had done himself. Now, here's the, here's the challenge. There is a big difference between fulfilling the law and between keeping the law. And let me explain to you. The person who strives to keep the law does so so he can get a reward from God. The person who strives to keep the law looks for a reward from God. But the person who is fulfilling the law does so because he knows that God has already rewarded him through his love. Thank you, Jesus. That's the difference. And so the reason that we are no longer under the law is because God says he has given us a new nature and we are commanded not to serve in the old way of keeping the law, but in the new way of his spirit. The very power that empowered Jesus to fulfill the work that God had given to him is available to us through his own spirit to live it out. And so we are commanded to depend on this Holy Spirit 
this morning to fulfill the work that God has called us to do in loving one another. So here is my charge to this church. How will Toronto North be known for its love of one another? How will it be known for its love of its neighbor? Is it going to break the cultural individualistic mentality that says that I am in it for myself and would it start thinking the way that the gospel challenges us to think outside of ourselves? To what extent will this church go to make Christ's love known and experienced? What is the cost that is this church willing to pay to make the love of Jesus Christ known in its neighborhood? See, the world and your neighborhood is watching you to label you as being authentic. So let me pray. Father, again, I thank you so much that your word is alive and it is active and is able to save. And I cry out to you this morning, Father, would you help us because apart from you, we can do nothing. We don't have it in us, Father, nothing good in us to to love one another, but because you live and because your spirit lives in us, would you give us this grace this morning to fulfill what you commanded us to do and to do it well so that others who watch us will know that we belong to you that we are your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.